0: On this Mother's Day, it's worth taking a second to pause and ponder the imagery in the Bible that presents God as a mother, or at the very least, motherly imagery in the Bible that's attributed to God. I mean, God is obviously the Father. The first person of the Trinity is referred to as the Father. James 1.17 describes him as the Father of lights. His Trinitarian uh, term in the order of procession is he's the Father, he is the, the source of all. But the Bible also refers to God with some motherly phrases. For example, Psalm 90 verse 2, Moses describes God as the one who uh, gave birth to the mountains. In other words, God created the world, the mountains, and by extension, the earth is from him. He delivered them into existence. Deuteronomy 32 verse 18 makes it more personal and says that God delivered or, or gave birth to Israel that he chose one person, Abram, who didn't have a nation. And he chose him and chose to make him into a nation. That's what Deuteronomy 7 says. And later on, Deuteronomy 32, verse 18 says, it's described this way as God birthing the nation. One of the stranger examples of this in the Old Testament is Hosea chapter 13, where God says that when his children, in this case Israel, wander from the truth, he responds like a bear bereft of her cubs. Now, I've never encountered a bear bereft of cubs, but uh, I imagine the word ferocious would come into play. And that's how God responds when he sees his children wandering from the truth. Those images are all just preparatory for the basic biblical principle that somebody comes to new life or saving faith or somebody becomes a Christian when they are born again, when God gives them spiritual life. And that's how God operates. He gives life to people. He brings them into new spiritual life. This is what the Bible refers to as the doctrine of regeneration. And that's what we'll use as an outline this morning. I want to describe the biblical principle of regeneration to you. Regeneration is simply the, the, a word for God giving spiritual life to people. You're born into this world with physical life, but because of indwelling sin, you're spiritually dead. So every baby that is born, every baby that was dedicated today, has physical life, but spiritual death. Now, because they have spiritual death, they will sin. Sin is not, uh, our sin is not the cause of spiritual death, it's the fruit of it. And yet, God is not content to just watch everybody go their own way. Rather, he chooses to save some. And he saves them by regenerating them, by giving them spiritual life. Regeneration is just the fancy word for God giving life. And I like that word because it's the word that gets, comes up in the concept, in the conversation with Nicodemus. If you remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the leading teachers of Israel, if not the leading teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. And Jesus answered him. And I, I love that she, Nicodemus didn't use a question mark, you know. <laughs> nicodemus just said rabbi etc and jesus answered him i love it when jesus answers questions that nobody asked out loud (laughs) jesus answered him and says no one can even see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again then nicodemus was shocked (laughs) he put on a shocked face his jaw on the floor jesus says pick that back up (laughs) Nicodemus had not heard that kind of expression before. I mean, he didn't grow up in a world with John 3.16 bumper stickers. I mean, that was John 3.3. 3.16 hadn't come yet even. (laughs) He wasn't familiar with the phrase, be born again. And, And so he's trying to get his mind around it. I mean, what does it mean you have to be born again, a new birth? How does that even make sense? But this is an old concept, isn't it? When Adam and Eve sinned, they died. That's what God said would happen. They didn't die physically, of course. That would come a 1,000 years later. They died spiritually. And as a result of their spiritual death, they crave sin. God comes to them. God sacrifices the animal. God atones for their sin. God covers their sin. God grants them faith, and they are regenerated. This is, in fact, probably the oldest spiritual lesson, other than don't listen to the devil. Second oldest spiritual lesson, that God gives spiritual life. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah describes it. Jeremiah describes it as uh, taking out a heart of stone and getting a heart of flesh, of having a circumcised heart. Ezekiel describes it as a valley of dry bones that God breathes on and causes them to come to life. Remember, God asks Ezekiel, look at the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives the only answer possible, Lord, you know, (laughs) you know. And God gives them life. This is the basic biblical teaching that to come to faith, God must regenerate. God must give life. Regenerated, as I mentioned, is a fancy word to say God made us alive. This happens by faith in Christ through grace. Ephesians 2 verse 5, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So we were dead. God makes us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says. This is something God does to you. And you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. You can't deserve it. You're given it by grace. People don't sign up for this. They don't queue up for this. They don't stand up for this. They don't wait up for this. It happens to them. You could say it this way, salvation is supernatural. Or you could say it this way, salvation is something that happens to you. And this is pretty much the most basic thing for you to understand about salvation or most critical or important, that it is regeneration, that God does it to you. You know, going to an airport does not make you an airplane, right? Right? I'm glad you're sitting down for this news, but going to church does not make you a Christian. Even going to church on Mother's Day. <laughs> going to a swimming pool does not make you Michael Phelps. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. and it's, Yeah, and we, we chuckle at it, but it's interesting that if you ask somebody, are you a Christian? A, a very quick answer is, yes, I go to church at... And I respect the one-to-one correspondence there between being a Christian and church membership. I do, I appreciate that. But again, let's not confuse cause and effect. You are not a Christian because you go to church. So it's worth asking, what makes somebody a Christian? And the answer that the Bible gives is regeneration. God making them spiritually alive. Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus, John 3, verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That which your flesh produces is only death, Jesus says. But the Holy Spirit can bring life. And so let's look at this teaching a little bit more carefully in James 1, verse 18. First, we are regenerated by his will. This is verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. And that makes sense because as I mentioned earlier, people cannot regenerate themselves. You know, we're not earthworms. People cannot regenerate themselves. We cannot give ourselves spiritual life. People don't seek spiritual life. No one seeks for God. No, not one, the scripture says. All have sinned, all have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way, the Bible says. Our hearts are dead, cold, callous, and opposed to God. We run from the light, not to the light. And so if left on our own, we would not be seeking him out. And this is exactly why Jesus uses that analogy of a new birth to describe saving faith. It's not just that a a Christian is a brand new spiritual life, although that's true. It's that the analogy is so outrageous. What happens to you in salvation is so over the top, it's so different or so miraculous that the only analogy or the only idiom that really works as a comparison is that of new life, new birth. Before there wasn't a person, and now there is a person. That's their birth. We celebrate your birthday. And when it comes to saving faith, it's the same way. You are spiritually dead, and God gives you life, and you are a new creation. It's your your new birth, your spiritual birth. Now, Nicodemus responds to Jesus, remember, by saying, so wait a minute. How can someone be born again when he's old? Nicodemus, do you remember the question? How can someone be born again when he's old? Is he supposed to enter back into his mother's womb a second time? And that's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> but Nicodemus is not being obstinate here. He's not being you know, willfully uh, close to Jesus' teaching. He's just trying to get his mind around it. Jesus says you can't even go to heaven unless you are born again. And Nicodemus doesn't know what that means. How can you be born again? How can you make yourself born again? I mean, do I have to find my mom? What if she's not even alive? I and mean, where does this begin? And so Jesus corrects him and really rebukes him and says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? This is not new truth. This is old truth. You can't make yourself born again. God has to do it to you. This week in the news, there was, or I guess there's social media, which is sometimes news. (laughs) There was a story of a parenting expert, in quote marks there, who is in the news for suggesting that parents should seek their baby's consent before changing their diapers. (laughs) I like that you guys find that amusing. She probably had some underlying point that might have been decent enough about, you know, affirming the self-worth of babies or whatever. But it was lost by just the humor behind, you know, would you like your diaper changed? Blink once for yes, twice for no. <laughs> so it's silly, but it's not even worth sharing. But I bring it up because the Reuters story about this, Reuters news service has an incredible story about this. It was just no, no byline, just a wire service story. But the person who wrote it, was probably worth journalism school just for this paragraph. He or she writes that according to doctors, babies can't understand words commands or even concepts such as change until between six and nine months and then this sentence is gold right here doctors agree that even then at nine months babies don't always obey what parents want (laughs) I mean doctors agree (laughs) it's funny right (laughs) well let's just rewind the tape Few months before that, does a baby give his or her consent to be born? Do you ask? Is it possible? And this is what's behind the analogy of comparing salvation to the new birth. That you don't do it to yourself. <laughs> I wasn't asked if I want to be born. You know, you, you picture the high school student throwing a temper tantrum through his mom and dad who you know, gave him a 10 o'clock curfew and is yelling and freaking out and says, you know what, I didn't ask to be born. And I say, that's great theology. You're right. <laughs> you might be a theologian. You didn't ask to be born. Nobody checked with me. You didn't, ask, you didn't get to choose who your parents were. You didn't get to choose what state you were born in. It's interesting, I would, if today, if you were to say, what state would you like to be from? I would choose New Mexico, and yet I was born in New Mexico. It's just a wonderful twist of providence. <laughs> Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. But it's not something you will. It's not something that you generate. So from whence does it come? <laughs> Where does salvation come from if not from the human heart? And that's what James 1.18 is answering. Of his own will he brought us forth. One translation translates it this way. When he decided, he gave us birth. Or he gave birth to us. When he decided, he gave birth to us. And I like that translation because it puts the emphasis on the decision of God. When he decided to, he gave birth birth to us. But what I don't like about that translation is it kind of puts it in time. It makes it a temporal statement, doesn't it? Like when he decided to, like the world's going on and God decides to do it and does it. And that's not what's happening in James. If you remember chapter 1, verse 17 of James, last Sunday we looked at this, we saw that God's will is eternal, it's unchanging. He is the father of lights. He's the source of all things. Light, and by extension, every good and perfect gift comes from him, and in him there is no variation or change due to shifting shadows. So God's will is resolute. It doesn't vary, it doesn't change. He doesn't take suggestions. He doesn't hold committee meetings. He decides and he acts and this all happens before the foundations of time. That's why the Bible says that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the earth, that God's will is resolute. Now, that doesn't mean that God is passive or stoic, that he decided once and things are just happening. You know, that's deism, that God wound up the clock and just lets it run out. That's not the God of the Bible. It doesn't mean that God is stoic. It means that God is always acting. He is pure action. He is always at work. He's always radiating. He's always communicating. He's always at work displaying himself. Even before he created the universe, he's doing this in the Trinity. And now with the universe here, and now with us here, he's doing this to us. He's always displaying himself. And he's never changing his will. That's so why I like the NIV translation of this verse, uh, James 1.18 the NIV, he chose to give us birth. God decided to. This is his decision from before time began. And note the agency here, that God is doing this based upon God's own free will. People ask, well, where does our free will into this? Well, there's verses about that, but James 1.18 isn't one of them. <laughs> James 1.18 is about God's decision, God's will. And by the way, I've heard people try to limit this verse here to just, you know, a fanciful will in God, like God saying, oh, I really wish people would be saved. Fingers crossed, angel feathers crossed. (laughs) I hope people will be saved. I've made the world and now they fall into sin and I hope some of them come to saving faith. That's what it means by will. No, this is not fanciful thinking. This is not wishful projection by God. This is not the kind of, Joel Osteen-ish theology of you conceive it in your mind and it comes into being. That's not what's happening here. This is theologians refer to this as God's productive will. That God wants something and he conceives it and he makes it happen. it's a very act of his will. That's how strong God's will is. He desires it and it happens. Not wishful thinking. John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of the will of God. This was not man's will that accomplished this. It's not out of our will that we sought the Lord. It's out of God's will that he gives birth to us. What kind of will are we talking about? Well, from last week, we talked about his immutable will his unchangeable will, his constant, eternal, effective, powerful, creative will. Now, part of that will is every trial we experience. And we looked at that last week. From him, the Father of lights, we go through trial after trial, and they are good gifts. We don't think they're good gifts, right? <laughs> we ask, yeah, these, this is not on my registry, God. <laughs> I'd like to return these gifts. What's the refund policy on these? <laughs> No, but they're from His will. Why does He give them to us? Because they're sanctifying us, they're growing us, they're at work in us, but all of those are secondary to the best gifts. So 117 says every good and perfect gift is from Him. 118 describes salvation as the consummate of those gifts, the highest of those gifts. He doesn't just give us trials, He gives us trials after He gave us His Son. Of all of the perfect gifts He gives us, the new life that He gives to us is the foremost. That's the gift of regeneration, where He animates us spiritually. Regeneration is not, as John said in John or Jesus in John one thirteen John writes, it's not simply an act of the human will, but it is world altering, life changing, supernatural trust that turns your world upside down as you come alive in Christ. It's not wishful thinking from God, but assertive, declarative, productive, effectual will. And we've seen this before in scripture too. This is how God created the world. Remember all three members of the Trinity. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. And the Holy Spirit was hovering upon the the chaos and the nothingness that was there. And the Father willed for there to be light. And the Word, which is the second person of the Trinity, speaks light. And the the Spirit, who's the agents here, creates light. So it's the Father's will and light. You see how the three persons of the Trinity have this shared will, and they will for there to be light. And the next verse is there's light. (laughs) And they want the earth. And the next verse is there's the earth. And they want cow. And the next verse, Moo. (laughs) That's the will of God. And here, that same Trinitarian will is used to save us. Another item from the news this week, it's a big legal controversy of the president has the power to pardon himself. Can the president pardon himself? And most legal scholars say, yes, he can. Perfectly within his prerogative to to power himself. It just wouldn't be politically wise. Okay. (laughs) I like that concept, but when it comes to us, it's not even hypothetical. You do not have the power to pardon yourself. You cannot forgive yourself of your sin against God. It's not up to you. You can't self-generate forgiveness. When you die, you're not going to be able to stand before God and say, God, it's okay. I got this taken care of because I have forgiven my sins against you. (laughs) So we're good, right? It's God's will that leads to salvation. Every good and perfect gift comes from God and the greatest example of this is the new birth. Well, firstly, we're regenerated by his will. Secondly, we're regenerated through his word through his word. This is the means by which he uses. Now, earlier I said, you know, God pictures cow and there's cow, and the same with salvation. It's not exactly the same, because with the cow and the earth and the light, there's no means involved. They're just simply uh, the Trinitarian work, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They create those things directly. But with salvation, God uses means. The two means that are often attributed in salvation are the word of God and the spirit of God. And and what I mean by that, if I were to say I hit the baseball, but I use the bat, you know, the bat is the means by which I hit the ball. And we all understand that, right? Baseball players have batting averages. Baseball bats do not. (laughs) When it comes to salvation, God is the savior. He gives new life, but he uses a particular means to do so. The means here in verse 18 is the word of truth that God gives life through faith in the gospel, which comes through the word of truth. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the words about Christ. So you have to get your mind around the logical nature of this in order to understand what James is doing here in verse 18. Can you, be, can you go to heaven without being born again? No. So the only way to heaven, the narrow gate, is being born again. Can you be born again without having heard the words about Christ contained in the Bible. No, the only way for you to be saved is to place your faith in Christ. The only way for you to place your faith in Christ is for you to hear about Christ. Do you follow the logic here? So if you can't hear about Christ, and you can't call to him or believe in him, and if you can't call to him and believe in him, you can't be saved. Therefore, the means by which God uses to save people is the word of truth. That's what he says in verse 18, that he brings us forth into the spiritual life by the word of truth. Or John 17, 17, where Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. God's word is the word of truth. This is what Paul means in Colossians 1, 5. We have a hope laid out for us in heaven. Of this we have heard before in the word of truth, namely the gospel. Paul uses the phrase word of truth interchangeably with the gospel. You cannot be saved apart from the hearing of the gospel described in the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, probably the closest passage in the Bible to James 1.18, they're practically identical. 1 Peter 1.23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's the channel, is Peter's language. The channel in which the new birth comes is the word of God. It's a constant New Testament refrain god gives life through the working of his spirit who uses the word and that's what jesus told nicodemus remember he tells nicodemus you have to be born again nicodemus doesn't understand what he means jesus says flesh produces flesh but then he goes on to say you must be born through the water and the spirit water representing the word of god the washing of the word of god and that's an image by the way that jesus takes from ezekiel 36 Ezekiel 36, 25, Yahweh speaking through Ezekiel says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. Do you see how this is regeneration here? I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. Your mind should go to Jeremiah here asking, can the, the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Can the sinner change his heart? No, but God will do it. He will do this heart surgery. I will place my spirit within you. I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Notice that this produces this changed life. This produces this life that is now in love with the word, a careful observance of the word. So the image here from this whole passage is that God wills to save God is a savior by his own nature, and he chooses to freely express that by creating the world, allowing the world to fall into sin, redeeming those from the world that place their faith in the Son so that he can be known as the savior. He does that through the word that describes his glory. All this is happening for his glory, which is contained in his word. So that's why a person can't be saved without hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what James is going to go to next week. We'll look at that 19 through like 22 or so is about the importance of hearing the word of God. So we'll save the hearing part for next week. That's what I say when I'm running out of time. Next week. (laughs) So first, you're regenerated by his will. Second, through his word. Thirdly, you're regenerated for his worship. There's a purpose in all this. God doesn't save you simply to save you. He saves you to expand or magnify or amplify his glory through you it's the rest of verse 18 that we might be or we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures the goal of God sending his son is not simply to save you but it is to save you and then change you and cause you to glorify him more fully That's so what Ezekiel meant when he said I will cause my spirit to uh, dwell on you and you will observe my statutes and my ordinances carefully Here James uses the analogy of first fruits. In fact, he says a kind of first fruits. He's highlighting it here. He's speaking of just a kind of first fruits. First fruits is an Old Testament concept. It's not one that's very familiar to us. It's from Leviticus 23. and In Leviticus 23, the Israelites are coming out of the wilderness. They're going to cross the Jordan. The walls of Jericho will go down, and they will plant their crops in the Promised Land. In the wilderness, they were eating manna. Not a lot of diversity there. You get an old bored of it really quickly, I would imagine. <laughs> Have you ever heard a kid say, we had that last night? Hey, welcome to Manaville, my kids. <laughs> so in the promised land, they're going to eat more things than just manna. But the cool thing with manna is it does not involve a lot of work. You just get it, and then you eat it. <laughs> Growing crops work. <laughs> And so they go into Israel. They're planting the crops. The crops are going to grow. And there's this big question, because God says in the, in the Mosaic covenant with them that if they're not honoring him, he's not going to let their crops grow. And so they're unfaith now, 40 years. The whole generation in the promised land had never had to grow their own food before. But now they are. The first harvest is going to come, and they're supposed to get the first fruits, the very first things, the first sheath of wheat. They grab it, they tie it up, and they go straight to the priest. They hand it to the priest, and the priest is going to wave it in front of them and in front of the congregation. And that's a way of saying that God is pleased with what you've done. God is receiving, he's accepting your work in the land. The mystery is over. You, there's no more doubting, is God going to make the crops grow? No, they're growing right now. And so you can trust God. And the first fruits are not the best of the fruits, of course. You know, uh, my wife and I are, are trying operative, we're trying to grow tomatoes right now. And there's little green things, you know, they're going to be the first fruits, but they're not going to be the best of the tomatoes. They might be the only ones that the squirrels have their way, but the first ones are not the best, they're just the first. And they are a token of future fruit, that's the idea. Here James says that we, those who've been saved by the will of God through the word of truth, are the first fruits of God's new creation of all of his creatures. This is millennial kingdom kind of language that in the future kingdom, God will rule the earth from Israel. Jesus will be in the flesh on the earth. What will that be like? Well, you want to know what the kingdom will be like? Look at believers now. Not that believers are as good as they will be in the kingdom. But they're a symbol of it, they're an image of it, they're an offering of it. They're a way of showing the world God is pleased with the death and resurrection of his son. God is growing and producing spiritual fruit right now. It's not as good as it will be in the kingdom. It's just an offering that points forward to the kingdom. We're called first fruits because God is saying he's pleased with us and how we're living our life. As we're following him and as we're trusting his son, he is pleased with us because we're in Christ. So, we're a first fruits. You want to know what the kingdom will be like? Look at the way Christians live and the way Christians love. It's not perfect. You know, oftentimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. We understand that. There's progressive sanctification, there's the ups and downs of spiritual life. <laughs> Nevertheless, James describes us as the first fruits of his creatures. The promise that there will be a better harvest later, that's true, but for now, this is acceptable. This is the same image, by the way, used in Revelation 14. There, speaking of those people who are being martyred in the tribulation for opposing the Antichrist, Revelation 14, verse four, the scripture says, those are those who did not defile themselves with women for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. So even in the tribulation, they're presented as the first fruits of the kingdom that's right around the corner. John says, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. That's the kingdom life, and that's what we're the image of. Now, of course, we're blameless in Christ. And our lives are progressively being sanctified. Now, let's zoom out a little bit from James 1.18 and look at the context of the, the rest of James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is giving you a dichotomy here. It's giving you two ways, two different images here. One is your own heart. What does your own heart produce? Well, your heart produces, in verse 14, lust. Lust mates with sin, conceives, and gives birth to death. That's what is created from our hearts. Our hearts see things they want. They lust after them. The lust, we give opportunity to sin through that. And when that has come to full term, is James's language, it's childbirth language. Again, when lust and sin have made it in its full term, they give birth to death. Now let's compare that to God's heart. What's in God's heart? Is it lust? No. God's heart is a positive will to save. How does God save? Through faith in his son opposite of sin and when God's will to save and faith that he grants meet it produces life this is why it's so ridiculous for somebody to say you know God wants me to sin God doesn't want you to sin you want you to sin (laughs) what God wants is for you to be saved So this whole passage makes you clarify your view of God. Is God good and life-giving and guiding you through trials in order to produce spiritual maturity in you? Or is God cold and indifferent with a hands-off approach to the world and to those who suffer? This is why it's so critical for you to see that James is talking here about not just God's sovereignty and salvation, but his sovereignty and trials. You might ask, who's he arguing with? Who's James trying to persuade here? Non-believers? No. He's here after the person that says, God is not sovereign over the trials I'm going through. And he wants you to see that that would be a very cold-hearted God. If God were to look at you and see the trials you're going through and say, hey, not on my watch. (laughs) That's not my work. Good luck with that. I'll see you in heaven. The most difficult things in your life, if God's hands aren't on them, do you see how that's a very detached image of God? That's not the image James gives you. James gives you the image of a person who is encountering various trials. And he's counting them joy because he knows that in those trials, God is at work. What is he at work in these trials to do? To grow me, to make me more mature to bring me into glory well why is he doing that because it's his will to save me and to be magnified through how i live god doesn't want me to sin he wants to sanctify me and he's using these trials to peel away things in my life that i would trust wrong thinking in my life, wrong loves in my life, lusts in my life. These trials are purifying me so that I can love him and worship him more. That's why he's doing this to me. Yes, it hurts, but I'm counting it joy because that's how involved my God is. In the details of my life, he is sanctifying me. We bought my youngest daughter, Geneva, her first Bible recently. She's four. She's... She can read some words, but she's not, you know, reading the the Bible. <laughs> Got the smallest font size. It's the easy to carry Bible. We were going through minimal carry weight is what we were after here, um, and that's because she gets Awana shares for it, which are important in life for bringing your Bible the Iwana shares. So at breakfast this week, there was a little bit of dispute around the the breakfast table about why does she have a Bible? She can read it, and she says she can read it, and the Bible's getting passed around and. My middle daughter grabs the Bible and opens it to a page at random, and she's demonstrating to us that she knows how to read. And I'm just eating, I'm watching this kind of and eating breakfast at the other side of the table, and then I hear her read the Bible. Fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. (laughs) (laughs) Time out. What just happened? (laughs) And, you know, she, she's at a level of reading. She's working away with these words, but she doesn't even know what she's read. She's going word at a time. She didn't put them all together and know what it means, but my, my oldest daughter did. And she goes, like, Dad, <laughs> got to give us something nice today. It's the will of the Lord, I think. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I grab the Bible and I look at it. And sure enough, she'd open to a page at random, and that's the... It's in the middle of a sentence that's the top of this page. Fathers know how to give good gifts to their kids. Oh, great. <laughs> Chick-fil-A for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't get a Chick-fil-A yet. <laughs> when you think of the will of God, this verse should encourage you so much because you should see in here that it is God's will to save We're not prying salvation from the reluctant hand of a cold-hearted and distant God. We have a sovereign, powerful, omnipotent God that is freely giving us salvation. This is Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he could sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Notice the water word there. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we're thankful that you are a savior by nature, that it was your own free act to send your son in the fullness of time, born to a virgin, who would lead a sinless life, would rescue us through faith. We're thankful that you are a saving God who loves to draw people to yourself. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here today that has never given their life to you, that they've never trusted you. I pray today they would turn the eyes of their heart towards you. They would believe what the Bible says about you. They would believe that you died on the cross for their sins, bearing the punishment they deserve for their sins, and that you would make their hearts alive to the truth. We know this is what you do, Lord. You love to save people. I pray there would be people who are here today who've never given you their life, and that today, they would look to you and be saved. I pray for the hearts of those here who do know you and do trust you. I pray that you would give us confidence as we live this life. Confidence that every good and perfect gift comes from you. There is no variation in your plans. There's no shifting of shadows due to change. There's only your light and your love that you have for us in Christ. Because of that, Lord, we want to declare that all of this glory is for you. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly Serve the Lord faithfully and share the gospel boldly.